When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, it's Julie Harrison Harney and welcome to Turnbuckles. Tommy is out today and John has lost his voice, probably as a result of doing his impression of Vince McMahon too many times. So instead of being stuck with me and my thoughts for an hour, we decided to look back at some of our favorite interviews from the past 33 episodes of Turnbuckles. You'll hear moments from pro wrestler Danielle Camella, comedian Gary Goleman, former WWE writer Andrew Goldstein, and many more wonderful and amazing people who share a few stories from the world of pro wrestling. Up first, our interview with former WWE digital strategist Amanda Stonehall to discuss what it was like working on the WWE social team. I'm not sure if you've ever thought about, you know, Vince's socials, Stephanie's socials, Hunter's socials. Do tell. But they are not, not run by them. What? They are run by... The social team. So I have written many of VKM tweets. <gasps> I've written, I have done strategy and written many a post for Stephanie. Did you author happy birthday, Shane? Was please, that you? Tell me, <laughs> please tell me you tweeted happy birthday, Shane. Do you know that tweet? If it was past 2017, then no. Do you know that <laughs> tweet? Have you seen that? I don't know this tweet. So just for anyone who's just, we have a bunch of people who just started listening and, and anyone that, um, it, there's this every year events, as you know, because you've had to write them for each other, did you? So the happy birthday tweets. Whenever Vince tweets out "Happy birthday to Stephanie," it's a it's a Hallmark card. It's it's an eight dollar Hallmark card with a probably video made and, by the graphics department internally. No, you're still you're killing my dreams. <laughs> you're killing everything here. And that does Vince see it at all, or does do they just do Vince it? does see it? He still okay, has to see it yeah, before it he approves it. Yeah, but he's not like, photoshopping it. Like he's not doing it himself. Absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. Like, I remember going through all the rounds for, like, Stephanie's header for, like, WrestleMania 2017 before she would see it. Did he ever, like, give feedback, like, mm, give it more pound signs? And you guys went back for half an hour and you're like, oh, he means hashtags. He wants hashtags. If, see, I wasn't privy to that because I didn't get to be on the direct email. But I know I know he, there was definitely feedback shared because wow. my tweet, which maybe had, like, hundred characters was cut, shut, cut down to like 70 characters. It was usually cut down like less words. Interesting. So to everyone out there that thinks, well, Vince, like, you know, there's certain Tom, what do you call them? Old heads. You came up with that, right? Yeah. Ego, I know that was CM Punk who came no, up I'm with pretty old, sure you were old head ego podcasters. No, Tommy Rico. He came up with old head <laughs> ego podcasters. That's I mean, I'll take Tommy credit Rico, for it. Sure. Tommy Rico comedy on Twitter. Yes. Uh, but uh, some of them say, Vince, I know what's going on anymore. But like Vince, fuck, he reads everything, right, Julie? Oh, yeah. Experience? Oh, yeah. he he reads everything. So, yeah, I just said everything, um, everything. He would respond to emails that weren't even for Vince. For him. Some, he was just no, copying yeah. on them. Yeah. Betsy Wait, Kelso I all the time would get like good thinking emails from Vince. And she'd be like, I didn't even know he was on that email. We would yeah, be like, I definitely think we that would have been around my time. Okay. The happy birthday, Shane. <laughs> so I, I just sent, I'll share this on, on TikTok, the visual. There are four tweets. One that says, happy birthday to the incomparable Stephanie McMahon. I'm a lucky dad. Yep. Then a leader, a father. And when he needs to be a cerebral assassin, happy birthday to my son-in-law, Triple H. 
Happy birthday to at WWE's Babe Ruth, John Cena. I really can't describe in words how much John Cena means to me and the WWE universe. Hashtag hustle, loyalty, respect, and love. And the last one is happy birthday at Shane McMahon. Period. (laughs) (laughs) His son. From the little I know. His firstborn child. He probably... There was probably a lot more to that tweet, and then they had to cut it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. The only way it would have been worse is if it was just HBD at Shane McMahon. I've gotten that from my own father. (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, God. That is, he had things that to is, do. We, I will say, Julie, did you guys talk about that all the time in the room? No. No. Oh, we always did. I didn't it hear always, about it until up, I met it was, you. No, it was always, we would, whenever we had to do graphics, we would jokingly text on our personal phones the Shane tweet. I'd be like, what do you think of this one? And it would be like, just the happy birthday Shane. Everyone was in on it. Nobody gave a shit. Because we knew Vince wouldn't fucking care. Um, so that's the funniest yeah. thing. If you search and, happy birthday, Shane, in our Slack channel, the turnbuckle Slack channel, it's like, there's 50 entries. Like we're just constantly <laughs> sending it to each other. Happy birthday. Shane has become a derogatory, like insult. It's the middle finger now of the wrestling. It should almost be like your cut, like happy birthday, Shane, like your Bravo, Bravo. I bravo. love that. Let's <laughs> give that to WWE. Yeah. I want Hunter to come out. And the next time someone gets kayfabe fired, go. You know, uh, who would it be this time? Like uh, Sonia Deville? Happy birthday, Shane! And the arena goes crazy. <laughs> they all know what it means. Nice. Oh no, she got happy birthday! She got happy birthday! Amanda, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little older than the other two co-hosts, so I've been a lifelong WWE fan, first WWF. And one of the things, and I'm also fascinated by marketing. Uh, and one of the things I've always been interested in with WWF and then E is that no matter what era they've come from, once Vince took a hold of the, com- the company in the mid 80s, you would see them reach out for the next big media project. It was like, OK, first we have cable TV, then we get pay-per-view, then we're going to get network TV with NBC. And it was they were always and then we'll do live on Monday night is they were always reaching for the next thing. So they were really for a company that is a that is offering a very old, very carny product. They were always reaching for the next big media opportunity. And I remember yep. I mean, the early days of WWF.com. Yeah, WWF.com. They had bite this. Yeah, uh, it would take you 20 minutes to download someone's Titantron video so you could listen to their music, their entrance yep. music. But, yeah. So but the period that the you, WWE Network, uh, which, no, WWF.com, the old one. Vince had but that idea. Were, Bruce said yeah. in a meeting that when we were pitching that Facebook show, he made a joke because Vince like had had that idea for a network since the 80s. Did you know that? Did everyone know that that was like in the late eight, like yeah. right after WrestleMania three, Vince was like, Bruce was telling, he made it and Vince went, God damn, that's right. And they were joking about how right when Bruce came to the company, Vince was already saying this is going to be its own channel someday. And everyone yep. was like, you're fucking crazy. Like you can't do even do sports on your own channel. But Amanda, you Always were fucking va- ahead of it. You were at the, you were in the marketing team in a very pivotal time, because again, as a lifelong viewer of WWF and WWE programming, that era that you were in what 20, 2014 to 2017, they mm-hmm. went from, Hey, WWE is on the internet to, Hey, WWE is the internet. Like there was a huge quantum leap in that time. Can you explain, was there an overarching strategy? Was it just like, 
everyone creatively going in different directions to try to find the new thing, the next thing? If, you know, a mix of it was the fact that, as I mentioned, Facebook noticed what power we had. Twitter noticed what power we had when the, Twitter first brought the um, emojis at the end of a hashtag. We got to t- try them out and we were the first to like get, you know, I remember when they gave NBA one for each team and we were like, we can't have one for each superstar. Are you kidding me right now? Mm. But, you know, I, I was there for the initial ones. Everyone but Shane. Well, Shane's Everyone but Shane, of course. And it's there permanently. <laughs> but in 2015, there was a crazy, Sorry. crazy request from VKM where we had to react to pop culture, even though WWE is pop ah, culture. This is 2014. So was that the year you 2015. Oh, 2015. Yeah. Okay. Ah, see, that's, that's a sweet spot right there. That's fun. Yeah. But it was also like, what do you mean react to pop culture? We are pop culture. How, like, right we answer. set pop culture. Give her a fucking raise. <laughs> The rest of you are fired. We are. Don't leave me alone with him. (laughs) It was like almost doing a meme before memes became what they are now. Got it. A little bit. And obviously memes kind of trickled down to the dot-com team, which are still learning how to do social. Although I think most of them now are working in social media. Um, But, you know, it's, that's the thing too. Everybody was like, oh, social, the golden child. But everyone thought they could. Anyone with a Facebook thinks Did they can Did people really do say social. that to you? Was that actually an out loud thing or was it kind of subtle or? It has been said to be in different places, but oh. it's definitely a thought where it's like, oh, I have an Instagram. I know how to do a story. It's like, oh, wow. No, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> you actually do not. Like, no, you don't know how to put together a Snapchat story of WrestleMania 2016. Talk to me when you do. I just love that people <laughs> are picking on the only people at work who know how to get into their social media profiles. <laughs> well, I'm not hey, sure nerd. if you guys know. Yeah. know this, but social media performance was directly tied to the executive's bonuses. Whoa. Wait, to the, the social executive's bonuses or everyone's bonus? The, the, like the BKMs, the Michelles. Oh, the, shit. Yeah. The brass. Oh, shit. That actually, I said that and then I'm like, oh, man. Because I was like, oh, they like, oh, that's why they like, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. But yeah. what an incentive to push forward. I mean, if you don't have that kind of incentive, it's very easy to coast when you have a company that's basically a monopoly for as long as they were. Right. And like, you know, uh, they stopped doing this, but there used to be a a deck sent out, I think, monthly, quarterly, uh, another Mana original. But Mm -hmm. we, we would have brag facts, right? And every time it was always John Cena, the most followed active U.S. athlete. Yep. Of all time. It's true. Yep. That's I have a ton of respect for, for the digital team, though, because even like back in the day, everybody points to WCW versus WWF and why WWF won that war. A lot of it at, at the very, very base of it was the fact that WCW did not know what they were doing on the Internet at all or couldn't care less. Or television. Yeah, or, te- yeah, or really anything. But WWF was airport. so good in the early days of the Internet that they were just they were running circles around WCW. And, yeah. st- and still do like right now, AEW's digital is mostly wrestler driven, which is great, but it also comes with a price, which is the fact that the production values are much lower. So it's got a well, kind of a homey feel to it, but it also feels second rate. I didn't, I don't know, Julie, if we talked about this, but I've talked about this with someone. Um, 
I don't know if you guys believe in this theory that AEW is secretly an offshoot of WWE. No. Yeah. I, 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 know, I like, can't buy really? that. Really? Wait, I but think, why? I need I, to hear this theory. Yeah. I mean, wasn't it started by Cody Rhodes? I will Partially. say that nothing shocks me. And now he's me, back I, at it, WWE. And Cody Rhodes obviously is always going to be kind of a WWE golden child because of his dad. I mean, in preparation of this this episode, I was reading up on you, Amanda, and you're a very smart, brilliant person. And I feel like this is a moment that in like 18 months, I'm going to look back at and go, oh, fuck. Maybe she told me. Next up, you'll hear our interview with wrestler and former WWE superstar Danielle Camella. I found a wrestling school in LA, which is called Knox Pro. Mm. Um, it's ran by Rikishi. It was ran by Gangrel and oh, Reno wow. Black Pearl at the time. Yeah. So um, I told them, I was like, hey, like, I want to see if I could do this. So I just went into the school, did my first training, hopped in the ring. And I remember Gangrel, he was running like the drills, the roles. And I had no idea what I was doing. I was just like copying everyone in front of me, you know? Yeah. And then it got to the point where they were bumping and I was like, uh, I've never done this before. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I just remember touching uh, the with my hand for the first time, uh, WWE ring. And uh, it's it was weird, like, right? It, yeah, it was very jarring. It was before I was working at the company. I was it was when I was at the Tonight Show and I I, I was at WrestleMania wants to do something. And uh, yeah, it just I was like, because in your head as a kid, you know, uh, my dad was always a cynic. So he would always say, mm-hmm. like, it's just because they would they would call it canvas. And he'd say, say, it's just he would go. It's just like a it's like a stretched out trampoline. It's nothing. <laughs> and then I remember putting my hands like this feels like metal. I was like, this really feels uh, very hard. And then you see people you see the bruises like when you're mm-hmm. backstage at TV or even in the office, like, you know, oh, yeah. someone will come in and you just kind of see their arms. And it's like, woof. But yeah, that's not just trampoline. That's uh, yeah. that's the real deal. Definitely. And I think um, during my first training session, Miro or Rusev was there oh, wow. um, at the time, too. And they were going to like run the ropes. And I was asking him, I was like, do you think I should do this? I've never do. I've never done this. He's like, probably like not right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, there are some bad stories about people running the ropes the first time. That's another thing. It yeah. sounds e- sounds easy. But not easy. Well, yeah, your whole the whole upper back gets bruised up too, which I wasn't expecting because yeah. you're thinking those things to be like rubber bands. Like, no, there's metal underneath Rope. those. Well, we all saw yeah. what happened to Bobby Lashley just recently when oh, mm-hmm. went through, and you imagine that force. But also, shout out to uh, Rikishi, um, who her, heard nothing but good things about right. Rikishi, and also Gang Grail, who oh, yeah. just showed up on AEW and Monster Pop. People went crazy for Gang Grail. It felt so good. Like I, I was, I was in high school again. Seeing and it, I know. it just. Can you tell us? I, I we don't want to break some. You know, Gang Grail. I always look at someone who's very kayfabe, and I think that's yes, great. But for sure, cool to work with. Cool to learn from. Oh my gosh! Yeah, so amazing to work with because Rikishi and Reno, they were more like the character and the storytelling, which is funny because Gangrel has a very uh, like he's a character. You know what I mean? But yeah, he was very about the basics. Like you're going to you're going to be on the floor. You're going to learn how to chain wrestle before you do any of that, like high flying stuff. So I learned so much from him and he was he was tough as well. Um, I know I remember like when I was learning how to sell in the ring, like I just 
I was not good at all. I didn't know what I was doing. And he kind of like was tough on me when it came to that, put some heat on me. And he really kind of taught me how to sell. Now, do you, if you um, don't mind my asking, so selling, uh, if anyone's just tuning in, that means you're, you're injured. And so it's like, yes. you know, it's like, you know, it's like on law and order, you don't see someone just sit up on the stretcher and start checking their phone. It's like, no, you gotta, yeah, sell if you're the victim there. So if you don't mind my asking, because everyone, this yeah. is always another one that's funded, sort of. Um, what were you struggling with in the selling? Was there anything? Because I knew, I talked to someone there and they were like, I just had this thing where I would laugh. And they were like, um, they would get nervous. Oh it was a male superstar and uh, they had to really get over it. And do you, what was it in particular that was just like the struggle? Because that is right. such, it's a skill. Well, I think also when you're learning and you're new, like you're so nervous and you don't, you feel like you're like, you look stupid. And that was something I, everyone, you know, in life has to get over the feeling of like looking stupid, but especially in wrestling, when I'm learning something that's so foreign to me, um, I was like just intimidated. And, uh, I guess the hardest part about learning to sell for me is, and this is embarrassing to say, but I have never been in a real fight. I've been trying to get in a real fight my entire life. It's on my bucket list. (laughs) Yeah. I tell people this all the time, but I'm like, well, I don't know how I would like act if someone like punched me in the face because I've never been punched in the face. So I really have been trying to get in fight my entire life to understand (laughs) that. But for me, it was just making things like real look real. And I went back and watched like a lot of fighting, like fight scenes and stuff like that. And it's like, okay, like if I was punched like this, my head's not going to go this way, you know, like things like that. I understand. Yeah. So in other words, so it's that old thing where, yeah, because that was something that always that it would take me is that like, and, and like, just I'll go back. Like this is, I'm not comparing, but like in high school drama, when someone takes a left hand and goes and slaps someone across the face as a fake slap, yeah. but then the head goes towards the <laughs> hand slapping. So that's what you're describing. Is that like that sort of thing where it's like, yeah, your head wouldn't go that way if you were just hit really hard the right. other direction. Okay. Or like if you got a small kick to the stomach, you're not going to double over and be on the floor. Like little things like that, that I just had like okay. never even like thought Interesting. about. And so, so that's amazing. So especially like if things go haywire and you got to call a match in the ring, it's like in your head, you have to be able to process the value of each, um, of each, set of offense your opponent's getting in and how I how you would react to that that's incredibly yeah. difficult because in a Hollywood set I mean they they literally spend a day or two or sometimes a week depending on the scene mapping out okay this is what you're going to do exactly this but in mm-hmm. live show live crowd someone misses a spot you don't have that luxury and then you got to know this means that this means that right and when I was living in LA, I did take some classes on like stunt choreography because I was just interested in learning that. And it's, it's totally different because you're, they're not making contact with you at all. It's all like smoke and mirrors with a camera, but wrestling is so different because it's live. There's Mm. no, you know, like edits in there and it just has to come across more real, I suppose. So fight scenes are like totally, totally different. And it's almost, and I would say that's probably in terms of when you hear about people talk about a good match versus a bad match, a lot of the more infamous bad matches, it comes down to the selling either someone, either both wrestlers don't sell and that turns turns into a nightmare. That's a lot of uh, big guy versus big guy matches uh, or overselling. 
And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not going to name names, but there was a, 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 I'll just say back in 2005, there was a very famous match between two Hall of Famers and uh, someone really, really got enthusiastic about taking his bumps when he found out that it was going to be a one-off match and there wasn't going to be a rematch. And it, yeah, it just does, the fans just start like, you know, it's like if you're a comedian, you go up with suspenders that rainbows and you just keep, you know, smacking them going, right, everybody? And it's just like, yes. yeah, you lose the crowd. What was, do you have a favorite moment that from, from in ring training, like with Rikishi, with, with Gangrel, uh, you know, with Miro, like favorite <laughs> moment down there or something you witness that it's just like, man, like, I'm so glad I got to see that. I'm so glad I got to be a part of that. There was so many different things, but I think, so this isn't really wrestling related, but this is a memory I'll always have from being a part of Knox Pro is we did a lot of like outside things and we were a part of this movie called Kingdom of Gladiators and it's on Amazon. So, but <laughs> um, we basically built all of us, like built the whole set together. We choreographed the fight scenes, like we did everything. And it was just really cool to see their creativity when it came to that. And also like all the students, just all of us coming together and putting in all these hours to build a set, to um, do these different like fight scenes and create this story. So it's interesting. And it was very cool to see kind of their wrestling minds um, translate over to this movie that we did. So that will always like stand out to me, but every day was something different. You know what I mean? So I have so many memories with that. Oh, that's very cool. Now, wrestling journalist Kevin Kellum of Sportskedia shares a few of his stories working in the industry. You recently interviewed someone who taught me a lot uh, while I was at WWE and uh, one of the best performers in WWE history, in my opinion, um, Paul Heyman. Um, Presumably. Would you say, could you, could you, could you rephrase that? Correct. I remember I went to go do the interview and I said, he is the manager of, uh, he's, no, I'm the special counsel. I'm the special counsel. And I knew, and immediately I was like, okay, I did. I had some of my notes of things I need. I wanted to get on as like wrestling journalist, but I was immediately, I was like, we're going kayfabe. (laughs) I was was like, I'm going right for, I'm going right for the storyline. I want to sell characters. I want to sell cool stuff like that. Uh, and then he just gave me this just golden, just this golden coin of a line. Because obviously a lot of fans want to know when we're going to get a Roman Reigns Raw playing the Rock Johnson match. And I think it's fair to ask him that. And, and uh, I think he's game to talk about it. Uh, Paul is not afraid of asking questions like that. And also giving you very provocative answers that are entertaining. And also enlightening uh, about, yes, uh, I do think this this has to happen because it's such a big match, but it's really it's it's really not a fantasy for Roman. It's a fantasy for, for <laughs> I was like, Ooh. oh, and then he said this. This is the best line. And I loved it. I remember I, he said it and my hand was off camera like this, the same type of setup off camera. I'm just like. <laughs> my, my, hand is, my hand is down here. I'm like, thank you so much. It's such a good line. Yeah. And he says it's a masturbatory fantasy to think that that could become real. He- and, I, and, I, and I was just like. Yeah. His use of language, I would yes. say, is one of the most unbelievable. Uh, he he can he can tell a story like no one else can tell a story and then on the spot can come up his his vernacular, his his the way he he says anything. It it really is it's really great to see live. I'm so glad you got that experience, Kevin. I it am. was and it, and it felt special. Yeah. But I'm also like talking to him in his car. 
you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so there, there's this part of me and he's doing a press chunk. So he's doing like 10 of these in a row, you yep. know, um, for a loop of different shows. This was booked through radio and obviously we're benefiting it at sports, you know, all these different things. So, um, there's things I have to hit. It wasn't directly was things I have to hit digitally. So there's fundamentals in it. And I'm thinking it, but in the back of my head, I'm like, he just gave me gold. Okay. Like I have to, that is such a great way to, to like make this feel like to kind of like take the edge off of it. Cause mm. he has to kind of like, yeah, maybe, maybe the match doesn't happen. You know, yes. maybe, maybe, maybe we don't get a rock, you know? So it was kind of entertaining and entertaining in the way that he did it. And he's very crafty and he's hyper. I don't think there's a more talented non in ring guy in wrestling in terms of like a performer that you never got to see maybe him and Bobby Heenan, you know, yeah. and, yes. you know, in terms of like, but Bobby was a wrestler though, too. I mean, Paul's gotten in there and gotten beat up a handful of times, obviously. Yeah, but I've seen it. He's, I, I <laughs> was there when he got tombstone by uh, the undertaker. I was at that show that in Boston in college and I brought that up and I thought like, cause like Paul Heyman, like he's done a billion things and halfway through me saying that he spun around. And he went, I hated that. Cause I guess he, they didn't get time to rehearse the bump. And uh, yeah, there was some, I'm not going to, there's some stuff I can't go into, but there was some, <laughs> Paul had a moment when he got backstage that even he admitted to, but it's interesting you bring that up though, because you know, do you know in advance if you're doing kayfabe or if it's going to be out of character or do you just kind of have to get when, when I'm interviewing somebody? Yeah. Like, do you know um, ahead of time? Sort of. Uh, I mean, I mean, and some of them have been, there's especially the last three years, like right before the pandemic, there was a bunch of big interviews I got. And then, they started to pick up again once, especially with WWE and most PR offices with the major promotions started to say like, okay, we can put people on zoom. This is, we have to do this. And yep. that became a little, your, your access, your level of access really became easier. Like everyone's on it now. Right. So once that happened, oh, there was that, but the in-person interviews, those are the most challenging because you're right in front of the person and it's formally filmed. I remember I did one with Seth Rollins and the day before I think we're just shooting it for Q101 radio that I was working with at the time. And we were going to run it on WrestleZone. And um, they, they didn't want it on the morning show for some reason. I was like, this is a huge star. Like they're selling out the all Arena in four days. He's like, I think my boss was smart. He's like, I think this will be a bigger deal for us digitally. And it'll be a bigger deal for you to do it too. And, and WWE and the client would like you to, you know, do the interview. I was like, sure. You know, I, I thought we were going to do it on air. It was fine. So I'm just dealing with that shift and we're filming it in the same space where we have like bands perform and stuff like that, like our little area. And the day before I get told another curveball, WWE is going to film this. They're going to film you as you're doing the interview. I was like, are they using the interview? I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just like, what? Okay. And I get there and they're filming everything. And it's for 365, the special they did on the network. And they got me and it, it was the whole media tour he did that day. So it wasn't clear to me exactly what it was doing. And they used a big line from it. It was really, really cool. Uh, but uh, I, I don't know Seth well, but I knew him from AAW and I knew him from independence. So I kind of sat down. I was like, hey, how are you feeling? I kind of get a read and kind of know what we're doing. Two days before I had Lacey Evans, the second I walked into the room where we're filming interview, she is all dolled up. It is a character. I'm getting Lacey the Evans. And then once we did the interview and lights were off, she turned, she's like, was that good for you? I was like, yes, it was great. Did you, did you feel good about that? I was like, was I selling for you? Good. She's like, did great. Good business. And I was like, great. So with her, it's like, I knew right away with him. I was like, what are we getting here? And then the CM Punk stuff was going on around then. And he was jaw jacking with punk. And I was like, all right, I'm going to bring up the punk. Like, Can I bring up the thing? And it was right before we were going to film. He goes, please do. And I, and I did. And then he told me he wanted to wrestle CM Punk at WrestleMania. I was like, and it's another like hand at the side. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, so for that, cool, for that great you just gave me. Yeah. And it's cool, but it's also like, you do that out of respect. You know what they gave you and, and you, you kind of, you still have to, 
do the fundamentals. We're plugging a show or this is important. We're, we're doing this to market and promote something to get fans that would care about this. Be like, Oh yeah, I get to watch and talk for 20 minutes. And God damn, I want to see someone body slam that guy at the Rosemont horizon on Saturday this, or Sunday or all state arena, you know? Yeah. Um, so you, you still have to think about the promotional things. And I do think there's a lot of people in wrestling you that forget that, that it's all about the dirt. No, we're an extension of promoting the shows week to week and the storylines and other stuff like that too. I have no problem with that. I have right. zero. Pro- There's so well, many people that do. I'm like, that's what why? I'm, why would you be so mad about like well, talking? That's what to I want to get into. And you, you talked about CM Punk as he would call them. He's, he's got a word he's been using for them on Twitter, old heads. And uh, they're not as necessarily as enamored with uh, the wrestling press. Um, no. How do you feel when you hear that? Because it seems like every podcast, every episode of every podcast, and we know who they are, you know, mm-hmm. they're the, the former, they very well respected, highly accomplished pro wrestling executives who now have podcasts. People get mad about people kicking out of pile drivers at, at a one count, like that type of thing. Yeah. But like okay. also, but just talking about every, every episode there's, there's, they, they, they dig at the quote dirt sheet guys. Now it's like a built in part, like a built in segment. Yeah, but, the, the but then the whole script of the show is built on dirt sheets. So, well, how does that <laughs> make you, script, how does that make you show feel? Is built on like, well, this was actually reported in the, you know, we're going to talk about a show from 1995 that you produced and it, yeah. featured it. That's true. And, That's uh, a good whole, point. Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? If it weren't for the dirt sheets, what the hell would the you be talking about? Or, or, or the observer from that year, you know? So you're literally um, like, yeah, you're the librarian that, that shits on the historian basically like, can you believe but this I, nerd I also, over here I, keeping track of what temperature it was on the 4th of July? Yeah, you know, and then a year later, does anyone remember what like, the temperature was? And, the, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's just like, okay. But like, what would you say? Say, I mean, have you ever encountered someone like Jim Cornette? Have you ever encountered oh, someone yeah. like... I've, 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 I've interviewed Jim Cornette. You did? I, I, was at a di- I was at a different website. I'm, I work for a website now where he's his not, his, not his best friend. Right. Definitely not his best friend. Uh, Vince Russo produces content with you. And, and Vince has his opinion, and I, I don't agree with Vince Russo, but I think he's, he's accomplished things. He's a very formidable writer and the things sure. he did in WWE. And then everything else that you could say about him, that's true too. Fine, whatever. I have no issue with Vince. But I know I probably wouldn't have, because of the, I'm on the same platform and same website as, as Vince Russo, I don't think I'd be having another conversation with Jim Cornette. And there's no shot at Jim. When I did talk to him, I was supposed to have a 15-minute conversation and um, it was a 30 minute conversation where I think I talked for two minutes. Wow. And, and, but also, were you in a Wendy's drive through of- by any chance? Were you taking his over? <laughs> yeah, we, went, we went through twice. We went through twice. Got <laughs> yeah, it wrong. he did. Uh, it was more yeah, of a no, yelling at for 28 minutes. Uh, no, but, but I was uh, entertained. You know what I mean? It, it was, he gave me like a wealth of story. It, there was so was many he cool? things. Was he, he nice? Were, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean so especially when. You know, I've had people that are like, you think they're going to be great. They're not. Yeah. I don't want to say their names, but it, you, you get some people and you think they're going to, oh, wow, this person's going to be awesome. Or you interview them a second time and it's just the day you got them. All right. I'm not down for this today. Okay. You know, or, or it takes a while. I remember I was interviewing that same, the same week I did this Seth Rollins interview, Lacey Evans, uh, Ollie Wrestling was in town two days later. And they saw that we did these interviews and then they go, well, here's Chris Jericho and here's John Moxley. There you go. And I was like, oh, okay. All right. <laughs> like it was like three, it was in like a week. So it was crazy. The job. I Hawks helped Chris was, Jericho uh, meet Keith Richards one time when I was working on. Oh, was, how, how, how did that come together? I uh, he asked, uh, he said, you guys got Keith Richards coming back tomorrow. I said, yeah. And he said, oh, dude, do you think I could come? I was like, sure. And so I He's helped, him, fan, I helped him get signed into the, the building. And then uh, 
I forgot about it. And then I come down. I was like, what's Jericho? Oh, shit. Like, yeah, I, I thought he was just like being like, you know, like, yeah, I'll see you later. No, he really was came. this when you were at NBC. Yeah, he really showed up. Okay. He met, it was like cool to see a guy I grew up watching meet his one of his heroes, <laughs> you know, that it, I was just like, yeah, I'll just do just, You know, I called like the desk and I was like, yeah, just, this guy, you know, it's Chris Jericho. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we know who he is. He showed up. It's great. Like he's like uh, and he was super cool. Uh, mm-hmm. Julie, there's another story, but there's a story going around the media right now, and uh, it's someone we both uh, have crossed paths with, and um, you know, uh, Stephanie McMahon, and you mm-hmm. know, that's a, a topic that's come up a lot as of late. Julie, did you see the Business Insider article? On, I didn't. Uh, no, I didn't. There's a an article that came out. Stuff keeps coming out about it, and people have Meltzer, Dave Meltzer, we should say. First of all, where do you stand on Dave Meltzer? Can I ask you that, I, Kevin? I, I, for me, as a reporter, is that what you're asking? Yeah, because he's like the I think Dave's, Dave's an accomplished guy, but Dave has his take, okay. and Dave has his sources and the things that people are critical about Dave. It's like fine, um, but I also think like I do. I'll say that this is the most, this is the worst thing I can say about Dave. I think there's too much weight put on the the ratings he gives to matches, and I I don't I think he feels pressure in that. Mm-hmm. But also, I don't think he cares. He's made his own bubble. He's made his own. Fo- I mean, he's made his own. Yeah, just out of the stuff in his really, office. Yeah, and everyone who complains about him is really just trying to, you know, get some heat off of him. You know, I mean, leave the man in his messy office alone, you know. And but he also responds to everybody. He engages on Twitter. Yes, yes. and maybe Don't that's the that. old head thing. Don't do he, that. Like, he, fa- he, he falls for the modern, yeah. the modern uh, landmines that are on Twitter waiting for him. But you know what? Yeah. His responses are always good. Like, they're, like, he's almost like he's got like a Heyman-esque presence on Twitter, I would say. Is that he, yeah. he will in an instant just cut a promo on a bot. I don't want to be like, Dave, you don't have to do that. No, everybody. <laughs> no. They, they have, yeah, they have I, negative I, five followers. I like, admire what Dave has created. Next up, comedian Gary Goldman shares some of his favorite moments from pro wrestling's past. We're so lucky to be joined by our guests because I can't think of anyone in the world who is as good <laughs> on the mic as the one and only Gary Gullman. <laughs> Thank you, Gary Gullman, for being here today, everybody. How cool is this? I'm so Gary, excited. how you doing? Welcome. Gary's wearing an old school Montreal Expos hat. So even though he's even got a subtle nod to some WWF history there with Montreal yes, involved. Definitely. The uh, Montreal screw job, of course, was was uh, relevant. But also this is kind of a throwback to a, a time in wrestling that no longer exists with the with the regional aspect of of pro wrestling, which was really my my wheelhouse in, in terms of knowledge and dedication and devotion. And yeah, so that, that so I think the Montreal, I, I love a good throwback. What brought you into wrestling? What's your earliest memory of getting into wrestling? I, I can remember just being Saturday was uh, the best TV in the house was in my mom's room, the best reception. So Saturday I was in her room and there was this guy who had elastics coming in out of his, in and out of his cheeks. And, and he had this horrible beard and he was being so mean. And I just wanted to see whatever he was associated be, be beaten <laughs> and he was at the time representing a, a team called Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saido. And, and I had to see Mr. Fuji and Saido lose. And <laughs> it turned out it was, it was a rematch between Tony Gurria and Rick Martel versus Fuji and Saido. And, and 
the the good guys lost and and it it really troubled me but i also just the i mean they really it was really suited for kids i i would find out later when i went to the to the boston garden my mom took me with some of her uh a co-worker who had young nephews my age at sears my mom worked at the cafeteria at sears so she knew everybody worked at sears and they took me to the boston garden and I mean, they really put on a, a great show, but also the audience was so entertaining because I think the older people got it. They understood that it was a it was a job. But me, I took every single moment of it. And I remember getting so anxious for Bob Backlund when he got into the ring against Adrian Adonis. I, I was I was just so nervous for him. I, his life was on the line <laughs> and it, yeah. it was just. It was one of the greatest nights I ever had. That's what I, I, I feel bad if people only saw those those Saturday morning wrestlings because they never showed you good matches. Only if the title changed hands or they were really trying to push a, a narrative. But I got to see it at the Boston Garden and it was exciting. And then at the very end, they would announce the next card mm. and the place would go crazy if there was a rematch. And I, re I remember them announcing that Greg Valentine was going to fight Pedro Morales in a brass knuck street fight. And I was like, oh my gosh, somebody could, could get killed at this, this <laughs> no holds barred. They, they right. were, I mean, they're going to do a street holds, fight inside. How's that? What? Yeah, that, that's nonsense. And, and a, lot of the holds, a lot of the holds were barred apparently. <laughs> and, yeah. And they were going to, they were going to let all the holds that were available be used. They would not be barred. Well, Gary, it's it's interesting we grew up with wrestling in the 80s in the Boston Garden because pre-80s, from the 50s all the way up until about when, when we started watching, the Boston Garden was a notoriously stabby venue. Uh, it, <laughs> yes. it was there, there, Everybody has a I got stabbed story in wrestling, and most of them come from the Boston Garden. So it, it, yeah, it seemed to so end right around 81, 82. Yeah, and apparently the cops thought it was part of the act. Weren't you supposed to get stabbed? I thought that was yeah. part of it. <laughs> how how daffy the cops were. I mean, it was, yeah. He's, he's, that guy over the there is bleeding from the forehead. Up. Somebody the check on him. showed up and it became so totally confusing. And I was like, <laughs> now there's a cop in the in the ring and and with the with the with the big white gentleman who looks like he's from Africa for some reason. Uh, I mean, of course, Akeem, the, the African dream. Uh, I don't know if they want us to call back to that, but it was an intriguing character. Um, yeah. But it's interesting but because when I think about it just now, it just occurred to me that the big boss man had a similar backstory to Sergeant Slaughter, which was he was so tough that this tough group of tough people kicked him out. Like Sergeant Slaughter was such a mean drill sergeant right. that he was kicked out of the, the Marines for being so, so mean. <laughs> and it it's just it's it's really something that I I believed it and yet would hear stories that it was fake that just that that kayfabe was was so strong during that era at a time when it was was more obvious than than ever that this was that this was a carnival they they had to to use this this idea that the person had no backstory before they got to the WWF. And before that, they, they just didn't exist. There were name changes. And, and now I, I went to high school with, with Matt Bloom, who 
No. Yeah, I played high school football and JCC basketball with with the A train. Oh my gosh, we knew Matt. We we intersected with Matt a few times. Yeah. Yeah, he's a he's a terrific guy, a really nice guy, and 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 very talented. I mean, he he really had so many great martial arts moves and and was very athletic. And but they changed his name two or three times, and the audience was hip to it, and they would sometimes yeah. chant. When he was Penn Sly, they would chant A Train. It was just <laughs> right. It, it was really frustrating. How does the that one, make you the feel one thing they couldn't change about they they could not change about Matt Bloom was his thick Massachusetts accent. There's right. no they could never <laughs> legislate that out. Yeah, I'm wick I'm wicked Japanese guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm from the land of the the wicked dude. The sun it's rising over here. Undertaker. Um, how did it make you feel as a friend though when you see because like because you're because because as a comedian, we see Gary Gullman and it's, you know, it's like a normal human evolution where we see like, oh, cool, Gary. And he's like, you know, we see more of it, but it's like, it's still Gary. How does it make you feel when you see your friend that you grew up with repackaged and come back as different characters? Like, do you, do you ever text him and say, Matt, please, just as a, as a, a viewer, this, what are you, what's going on here? Like, oh, no, I would, I would never do that in the same way that you would never say, hey, that joke is, is, is is not that strong. I don't, I don't know yeah. what, what's going on in the world of pro wrestling. And I, and I'll tell you what, in the same way, it's, it's honestly extraordinary that any of us do it still after all these years, yes. wrestling is even, is even more competitive, even more cutthroat, even, even less support in, in terms of the, the management union type of thing. So so we don't have a union, but we also don't fall from from great heights uh, on a on a weekly basis. And so for him to still be involved in this business, it's it's nearly miraculous. And I think you bring up a great point too, because you know so many people see a, a wrestler or superstar WWE do something, and all the fans say, "Oh, why are they doing this?" And it's like, you know, well, are they doing it well? And also yeah. their job and it's entertaining. So I think it's interesting yeah. that like you knew the person individually and you yeah. just trust said, man, I'll figure this out. And then yeah. uh, went on to have a great role running NXT. So it's interesting. So just for people online, the, the internet wrestling community, as it were, that always says, what are they doing with so-and-so? Well, maybe you don't, you don't know everything that's going on back yeah. and you don't know how it's going to end yet. But yeah, and they they take chances and they huh? and they have ideas and sometimes they work, sometimes they they don't work. Who would have ever thought that Sokka would would be <laughs> an, an icon in his in his own right? I mean, we the thing is is that our excitement levels were the bar was so low back then. I remember when when Ivan Putsky at the end of a match that he won would scream Polish power into the into the microphone that was oh my gosh has he gone off script is he is he doing something that wasn't a, approved and and the the great thing about when you come to wrestling is when you first see the the either the heel face turn or the face heel turn and you haven't seen it dozens of times so when when jimmy superfly snooker became a, a good guy Oh my word! I, I was just—I was blown away. I will never forget what what happened that 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 day. Were there day any heel turns? Were there any heel turns where someone turned heel and you said, "How dare you?" Where you just felt so betrayed? 
I, I mean, I always felt bad that, or, or I had regrets that I hadn't watched it earlier because I didn't see to, which, what to me must have been the greatest uh, heel turn, which was Larry Zbysko turning on Bruno Sammartino. It, it, it's silly for me to think this now, after all we know, but at the time it had this Satan versus versus God thing in my head. Now I realize, yeah, exactly. They're doing Satan versus God mm. every every six weeks to keep people to keep people watching. But I remember thinking, how dare you turn on Bruno Sammartino? He was your mentor. You were his favorite angel, just like just like Satan. I, I mean, it's 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 Shakespearean. It's it's biblical, but it was done in in such such high school musical soap opera terms back then. Now it's, it's, I mean, it's silly in, in its own right. And they, they play on it and they, and they do things that are meta, but at the, at the time it was so basic and, and so simple. And what, what I, what I really loved about, about uh, world world class championship wrestling was that everything was sped up and that there were, there was more, sort of ambiguous characters that is he a good guy is he a bad guy is he is he is he going to turn who is he going to side with it was just and also you got to see actually competitive matches where where 90 percent of the matches unless sd jones was was involved was was a squash match and it was it was really it was really frustrating and also i just wanted to shake sd special delivery jones and say listen He's going to be stuck in the corner. Do not run in after him. You've you've lost this way too many times. And he just, it, was, it was just Lucy with the football was SD Jones with the with the guy in the in the in the corner against the turnbuckles. Hear a little bit from former WWE writer Andrew Goldstein. What's up, Andrew? What's up, Ryman? How you doing, man? I'm doing all right. And you got here at the perfect time because we're about to talk to about someone that you worked with, I believe. Kurt Angle was on yeah. Raw last night. Did you get to work with Kurt when you were in Stanford? I did. He he was the uh I got, you know, it was the a very I was look, I was at WWE 2006, 2007. And so um if you're tracking Kurt Angle's career, it was a pretty dark time. Unfortunately mm. for Kurt, he was sort of the face of the ECW brand and he was going through a pretty tough time. And not too long after um, I left in early 2007, um, he left. Um, but yes, I was there with him and the helmeted um, bodyguards and the whole sort of ECW presentation of Kurt Angle. Did you work with him? Like, did you get to do stuff with him? Was Or was it kind not of... Was he much. Kind of, like I said, yeah. he was not in the greatest place in terms of collaboration. And so uh, Kurt was sort of uh, left to Paul, ha Paul Heyman, uh, mm. and sort of the sort of inside senior people. I mean, again, I was 25, I was low man <laughs> of the low man on the totem pole. So I was working with like Mike Knox, right? Gotcha. Isn't that interesting though, that Mike Knox that, Kelly Kelly storyline. Uh, isn't that interesting though, that Kurt is first like on camera participation in pro wrestling was infamously with Paul Heyman in the original uh, yeah. ECW and led to like lawsuit threats and all that. Cause that was the Sandman crucifixion right. night. 
<laughs> That's what came, came full circle. And you know, it's yeah. so funny that ECW brand, everybody was so critical about Brent, you know, like they're just putting the title in Matt Hardy. He has no connection to ECW, but like Kurt did. And yeah. it's one of those things where like WWE is weird about acknowledging it. Um, mm. But it was there. That connection was there. So like he felt sort of um, more, he felt sort of, you know, more appropriate to be on ECW than say uh, big show. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, and, and Kurt, so Kurt Angle was horrified. He, he attended an ECW show because yeah. he was thinking about signing with them. And he was horrified by the product and then spends 20 years in the product, which yeah. is just a, an amazing turn of events. Andrew, when you were there, was it the, the time where like Kurt infamously was so banged up that he went to management and showed like his graphic horrific injuries? Like, look at how bad I am. Was that the time? Um, by the way, before I answer your question, I only said hi to John Reinman. I want to say hi, Tommy. I'm a big oh, hey, fan. Andrew. Thank you. I didn't uh, say hi either. I apologize. It, we've had a lot of fun um, interactions uh, on Twitter, so I appreciate it. It's really Absolutely. cool to just be on the, the greater Turnbuckles uh, universe, so it, it's really cool. But in terms of your question, again, was not really privy to uh, that sort of information, but I imagine that was around the time. I mean, look, I don't, I, I love Kurt and he is really 360 from being, you know, at that low point in his life to, to being a very um, happy, you know, happy person uh, right now and really healthy person. But at that time, I mean, there, there was the, I even, I just hate to say it, but there was the Eddie Guerrero mm. sort of talk about him mm. in terms of, you never know, any day that phone, you know, that phone call could come. Like that's literally what the conversation was around Kurt amongst employees um, when we were backstage at TV. Like people were on watch for that. So, um, like I said, very, very dark time. I didn't get the entertaining Kurt Angle that uh, we saw during the Attitude Era, and obviously we saw uh, last night on Raw. So um, I'm just beyond so elated to see Kurt back and happy and smiling and you know, chugging milk and, and, you know, calling back to really fun angles from 20 years ago with edge and, and yep. smiling as, as wide as Kurt, you know, it, it was just, I thought he looked great last too. Night to see, to see classic Kurt. Be, and again, even his secondary run in WWE, where he's the GM and the whole Jason Jordan storyline, it was so sort of bastardized and not fun. And it felt like a round, uh, a square peg in a round hole with a lot of what he was being asked to do as an authority figure. Last night felt like, you know, it was a nostalgia. It, it was a nod to nostalgia and it just looked like he was having a blast. And he looked great. Yeah, he looked, he looked really healthy, looked really happy. And like when I was there, uh, he was a producer. Kurt Angle was. So oh, he, was, cool. he had a, he had a backstage role and we had lunch one day at TV uh, super nice guy, but what did not look nearly as good as he did last night. Did not look nearly as healthy, nearly as happy. Um, just seemed nice, but he just seemed tired. It just seemed like he was having a tough time. And now that he's had some procedures done on his body and like a lot of it, I mean, you know, there was a two year pandemic, you know, where he, a lot of people couldn't really go out and run too hard. And, um, when I saw he was going to be on raw, I was a little bit like, mm-mm. But he looked great, and I thought the segments were great, and I thought 
his what was Tom? What was his last nine? It was uh, he had he had some Kurt Angle curse that he uttered as he Jiminy Jiminy crickets uh, yeah. or something like that. But I forget what it was. But it, it was, was a great. Yeah, it, was, it, it was some Christian cleaned up version of yeah. of Jesus Christ. My only. Yeah. I, will, I I don't think I've said this Cripes on the show. Of the, by the way. of the night. I think it was. <laughs> I don't think I've ever said this on the show, but uh, Kurt Angle is in my all time top five, and yeah. he oh. and Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania are my there. That's my favorite all time match. Wow. Um. Yeah. He's he is just amazing, and he seems like such a sweet guy, and that's why when he started that descent into the painkillers and, and the substance abuse and he was looking worse and his his life seemed to be coming apart. It was terrifying because another also in my top five is Eddie Guerrero, yeah. who was a guy that I adored and his passing still hurts to this day. Because I think he had so much left to contribute to the business both yeah. on on stage and off. Uh, but Kurt is great. And then last night, so the procedures that you were mentioning, he's coming off of double knee replacement surgery. And not Same only time. walked to the ring, but walked to, to the ring in his gear. <laughs> yeah. I, my only critique uh, with last night, well, I have two, but one's a nerdy one. My, with Kurt specific, my only critique is that I thought the shush off with uh, Gable was going to end in an angle slam, which would have destroyed the crowd. You know, it just would have been amazing. Might have destroyed Kurt's knees, though. So. For sure. But again, when you're watching it and you're in the moment, you're just like, come yeah. on, I want that angle slam. And then I tweeted it last night. I, I don't necessarily, I don't live tweet raw too much anymore, but uh, I just couldn't help myself. I mean, it was glaring. Um, look, everybody talks about the difference between the creative now that uh, Triple H is running it instead of Vince. But one thing Vince was lit literally God level. Um, sort of goat level at was his meticulous eye for camera blocking. And I mean, post the whole post-match, the camera blocking again, super nerdy, super TV producer, you know, showrunner uh, talk, but the camera blocking was a complete mess. It was a complete AEW looking WCW, just like nothing was to the right camera. We missed all the good stuff. Uh, it was outside of the ring. Uh, it, it was a it looked like a production uh, nightmare. I know from being backstage and I'm sure John saw it, too, is just the time that Vince took with every segment on the format in terms of how it should be blocked from the littlest detail to the most important details. Um, I just thought it was one of those times where I'm just like, oh, yeah, that's where they're really going to miss Vince. It start and it starts in the room too. Like when he's getting when you're pitching the show to Vince, he's already thinking, oh, "How are we gonna? You know, how's how are we gonna see this? What's yeah? You know, what's he's gonna painting come the picture? Yeah. Um, and ideas live and die sometimes based on that. Based on that. Yeah. Andrew, so, was was that the match where the camera angle? There was a point where they just shot the dark part of the crowd, and there was no light or ring to be seen in the shot. Because there was one point where I'm like, "What are they doing?" They've they they literally had a back, yeah. like just they shot from the back of the room, but it was just the back half of the audience that wasn't lit. That was the whole shot. And it was on screen for they've like been, four seconds. They've been cutting to an extreme wide shot of the arena, which actually harkens back to the superstars and challenge days that I grew yes. up with in the 86, 87, 88. They yeah. used to do that. And that sort of used to be a bumper shot for them. Um, it 
was disjointing a because we haven't seen it in so long and b because it just felt randomly placed when when it was called for um in the control room i kind of like it as a um as sort of a reset but again like they don't have the the cool the banners hanging anymore like i think they used to do it on superstars and challenge just to show you like the perspective of like where the people are and the cool superstars banners and the ring um but uh, yes, they are. That is a new shot. That is not something that Kevin Dunn um, has uh, been calling for the last 20 years. Now it's on to Celtics announcer Sean Grandy. Do you have any good JR stories for us? Because I mean, Jim Ross is, <laughs> well, he is the voice of our childhood, of, yep. uh, you know, from the 90s for WWE. The funny thing is, like, if you're a Celtic fan, hardcore Celtic fan, you will remember the game that took place on the night that I met him because I was, I was introduced to him. We stumbled into uh, JR on a night in Charlotte when we were staying because we weren't playing in the next city for a couple of days. So we were staying and WWE was coming in. It was in the championship season. Early in that year, Ray Allen hit a buzzer beater, a very famous yes. one in Charlotte. That, that yeah. night, we stayed in Charlotte that night and they were all at a different hotel downtown and I went in there with a friend. And there was Jim Ross. And it's like most people, all these stories, people who are friends of mine, Jim Ross, Mick Foley, CM Punk, all of them are people that I was like reticent to meet because you don't want to meet people you are a fan of because what if they're a jerk, right? It like ruins the whole thing. You don't, you just don't want it. And it turns, you know, obviously that was however many years ago that was 15 years ago now. And, um, you know, JR has been a, a great friend and someone you could be you know, Someone to look up to, obviously, is the best to ever do, you know, certainly what he does. Um, and it's fun. He just remember, Jr. is the all time greatest wrestling announcer of all time. Apologies to the Gordon Soley people out there, but it's Jr. And we mm -hmm. all know it's Jr. But, you know, he also had aspirations to do NFL. You know, the XFL should have been that window for him to do that. Obviously, at the University of Oklahoma, he was just tagged. You know, Jr. was tagged as a wrestling guy, which cost him a potential career or a side career, obviously, in mm -hmm. you know, stick and ball, big four sports, whatever you call it. So I think he really I think he always enjoyed coming on with us whenever we go to Oklahoma City. For people who don't know, uh, you know, when Jr. was living there and he's kind of back and forth now in Florida and whatever uh, with yeah. AEW. But we would have him on for the second second quarter and Cedric Maxwell yeah. would slide out happily to go to the concession stands and. He'd bring a bunch of uh, JR, bring a bunch of barbecue sauce and all his products for Max, who loves to cook with them and whatever. And it just became a regular thing. And whenever we get a chance to, obviously the pandemic killed a lot of that stuff. Whenever we would cross paths or whatever, we always tried to see each other. The other day, or literally, as we're talking, it was a week or two ago, CM Punk was flying to Boston and I was flying to Chicago and there was bad weather that week and he was having trouble getting here. And I was concerned about getting out the next day. And I was texting him. I'm like, should we switch places? I don't think anyone would be happy with the results, but you know, just in case I get stuck in Boston and you know, he gets stuck in, he gets stuck in oh. Chicago before we move on to the NBA stuff. When you talk about comfort food and being a fan as a kid and generationally, the reason that I can speak with prof some proficiency about the current product now is not because I have that much time to, that's the biggest problem with my job is that it, it's all encompassing, right? It just takes up yes. all of your time. And so you can't watch TV shows or whatever. But my son is now 10. And he, at eight years old, out of the blue, started watching right at the start of the pandemic and yep. fell in eight, love eight. with it. And he grew up 
So his his first year as a hardcore fan, and I mean hardcore mm-hmm. fan, his room upstairs is a monument to he's got a money in the bank thing hanging from the oh. ceiling, everything, you know, the Drew McIntyre black, oh, all it. of it. And you know, this is a privilege right kid. Now. now, first of all, he's lived behind the curtain to begin with because of my main job. Yeah. And as you guys have probably gleaned, the play-by-play voice now of Monday Night Raw, which I would have bet a billion dollars against, is family to me. It's a dear friend of mine who I did Bellator MMA with yeah. for two years. So all of a sudden, now my son is behind the curtain there, and he's getting like personal videos from his hero, Drew McIntyre, like we all did. When I oh met Bob Backlund when I was a kid, after five years of idolizing him, I think I met him at a high school gym somewhere after a show. Did you have to shit. name all the yeah. presidents? And I, still, I didn't because he wasn't doing that. Now I'm, I'm too okay. old for that. This is like 1983. I did actually. This was happy, fun, baby of, face, Bob. I know. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. White meat, baby face, Bob. But here's just, here's something you would like when you talk about the comfort food and the generations. I do like telling the story to longtime fans or people that don't understand the comfort food, family, generational nature of WWE of anything that happens to be in your family, but WWE specifically. So this past summer, I surprised him. We were on a baseball trip to California and I surprised him. As you guys obviously know, my wife has a fairly prominent job. I'm told by Charles Barkley and others uh, that (laughs) requires her to go different places. So I had warned him that maybe the trip will get cut short. We'll have to, anyway, we get to the airport. He thinks we're going to San Diego. Uh, This is last August. And I start, I tell him, listen, we can't, we're not going to San Diego today. We have to make a little side trip. You knew this might happen. He's like, okay, you know, he's a little disappointed, but where are we going? And of course I step out to reveal the Las Vegas thing behind me. And two hours later, we're on the strip with Jimmy Smith and we're having dinner and he goes to SummerSlam the next day because that's living his best nine-year-old life last year. And so here's the tying it all together. So then the main event is Roman Reigns, obviously defending the WWE champ, defending the championship in the main event is Roman Reigns. And I'm there with my son, who's nine years old. And when I was nine years old, my first show that my dad took me to at Madison Square Garden was Bob Backlund defending the title against Roman Reigns' dad. Oh, nice. That's and that's amazing. a, you know, that then yep. now forever bit. Yeah, that's that's, no, that's really it. Yeah. And that's just oh. the, that was the same thing here. I was I was eight, and it was just kind of like I, the Celtics. That was the year that they they got screwed on that goaltend call. The McHale <laughs> actually won the game, and they said nope, doesn't count. And I just like beside myself. I was like I I got to find something else. And then it was like well, there's wrestling, and it was Undertaker's rookie year. So, um, but we want to do a fun activity because that's what all fun activities start with is being called a fun activity. But no, I think this will be interesting. Um, so as we, we have NBA expert and longtime WWE fan, and I, I'm going to call you an expert, Sean. You're an expert. And what we asked Sean to do. The podcast world has changed through. that with all these guys doing podcasts and sort of like yeah. the inside stuff that is happening in the 80s and 90s. And that's just, you know, you pop stuff, you pop those on. And, you know, I, yeah. I, I love to learn. That's the best part to me of being around JR is learning things. And you guys will, will love this. This is three, probably close seven, eight years ago. JR comes to Boston and we're, we're going to meet for dinner. So I go down to the hotel and we're trying to figure out where to go. And somebody else walks through the hall and it's kind of like, you know, not staggering around, but doesn't really have plans. JR says, do you mind if he joins us for dinner? And it was Pat Patterson. 
So oh, I'm like, uh, geez, twist my arm. Let me see if I can get a 500 level <laughs> masters, a master's course and have dinner with Jim Ross and Pat Patterson. So yeah. Tom, what would, what would Pat have, what would his call have been Tommy for the that last play in game one? Oh, we made him look like a douchebag. Yeah. <laughs> it's going banana. Yeah, just, banana singular. Yeah. It's, banana it's singular. crazy that two people uh, on this podcast today have had a meal with Pat Patterson. Yeah. And I'm not one of I, them. I, got to, I got to sit with Bruce and Pat one time when I was writing at WWE and um, got, I just kind of was there and Bruce very nicely and walked over. And uh, yeah, I got to hear both uh, like a douchebag and. Go banana. When Steve go out, they're going to go banana. So it was like, I and I said oh. to Bruce after, I go, was he doing that for me? And he goes, fuck no. He goes, fuck, what, do you, what the fuck do you think you are? No, it's he's the, him. He's the only French Canadian who has an Italian accent. It's yeah. weird. Yeah. <laughs> and a Boston history, too. So yep. I urge everyone to go look up. Yeah, uh, he does. Yeah. Patterson. He was here for a while. I got to see um, him. Um, one of the shows that uh, one of the events, I just took my son to SmackDown last week, which was at the Centrum, and the last time yes. I was at a wrestling event at the Centrum was the night Nick won the title, and we were oh, in the yeah. back waiting. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a cool ticket stuff to have. Um, yeah, I was uh, I was one of the asses in the seats, actually. Ironically, there you uh, go. Nick won the title. <laughs> figure. So take that, Tony. We were, in the, we were in the pack afterwards. <laughs> really, by the way, another great guy. I got to meet him last year at eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Jr. Just great, phenomenal. and also great, great baseball yeah, broadcaster. Baseball too. announcer too. Yeah, mm-hmm. the huge yep. baseball fan. Baseball announcer Tony Schiavone. Uh, I got to see while waiting for Mick, where Mick was driving with us. I've, I've many for many years given Mick grief about the fact that his second book begins with the story of the car ride through the snow back from the Worcester Centrum to his hotel in Boston after winning the title. And he talks about some of the people that were in the car. Uh, Blumini was in the car and the guy who he's doing the card show with, whatever. And he lists basically everybody who was in the car except me. So I'm like, I'm like, you know, I've always let, I've always given him grief about that. But anyway, while we were waiting for him afterwards, I saw Pat Patterson looking at the monitor, watching the replay of what was about to be this historic moment that I don't have to describe 25 years later because everyone sure. can just picture it with their eyes closed. Um, that you know, with Austin coming in, that everyone it was the biggest surprise in the world because Austin hadn't worked the night before because he was hurt. He hadn't been at the yeah. Raw because, as everybody knows, as Tony told us, that it was a tape show. But the, on a Tuesday, the Monday show, which I think was in Providence, was a live Raw in which Austin didn't appear because he was hurt. So the last person anybody expected to be on the tape show the next night was Austin, which was, it was going to be a big pop anyway, but that's part of the pop nobody talks about. Is nobody on earth thought he would be there. And last but certainly not least, wrestling journalist and Twitter favorite, Trevor Dame. I, I do think it has to be a legal thing because, I mean, the reporting you're seeing, it seems like every week now, I mean, like Dave Meltzer and people like that are saying, and, you know, he would know because he he is talks to all of those guys and some of them, you know, pretty obviously. But, you know, he, he will say like in the last few weeks, every week, pretty much like I talked to all those guys. They all I mean, without with the exception of Punk, who's hit hurt and can't come back right now, if he ever could. But like they want to come back. They don't know what their contract status is. I mean, they're getting and the the word that came out last week was they're all getting paid still, too. Like Tony Khan's paying them their money. He's not telling them what's happening to. And, you know, 
you know, it's wrestling. They could even be lying about that. They could all be back this week. You know, Adam Page last week for the first time on TV. I think that was like the first real kind of hint and mention of his friend. I mean, the Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks when he did that promo against John Moxley and said, you know, my friends have disappeared. I mean, I think that was like the first time AEW has even allowed someone like without even naming names to even just allude to the fact that something has happened. So, you know, is that a sign? Who knows? But I mean, I think it has to be a legal situation because why else would you sit this many of your biggest stars? You know, I think Kenny Omega just turned 39. Like the clock is ticking. I mean, not that, you know, wrestlers can wrestle late, but in your physical prime, your, your, your clock is ticking. He just came back. Like people that think this is just an angle. It's like, what angle could possibly be worth the benefit of losing out on months of him, you know, when he had just come back, it, it just doesn't make sense. And that's what I feel like a lot of conspiracies is like when people think, Oh, this is angle. This is angle. I think people need to realize that like you look at the history of wrestling, wrestling companies usually don't have a lot of patience, you know, like there aren't many angles yeah, in history that involve comp- wrestlers sitting out for months and months and months, like wrestling companies, they go to things pretty quickly. On the other side of it though, too, just the fact that can we agree there was also some kind of I don't want to say reckless because that seems a little bit heavy, but some kind of uh, overly speculative reporting about CM Punk's definitely getting fired on Tuesday. And oh, that's it. And these guys are there. Then I heard there's going to be a try. Like, didn't it get kind of out of hand the other way, too, with people just saying, I heard he's definitely gone. And the next thing you know, like you said, he's still on the payroll. Yeah, I mean, uh, a few days in, I feel like like probably the Tuesday or Wednesday after that all happened, you had multiple reporters saying like big news coming down today. And that news never really came down. I mean, I guess the biggest news was just that they stripped them of the titles. But even that, that was a very bland, vague announcement and nothing else. So, I mean, either they got fed some wrong things. They made massive assumptions. Although, again, so many of the top reporters were saying basic uh, hinting at the same thing, like big thing is about to happen. And I guess the other speculation could just be maybe they were planning on doing something and then someone threatened a lawsuit. And like, yeah, that's what Tom, Tommy, that was your idea, right? Yes. Like there was a whole bunch of whispering and rumors starting. And then somebody got the memo that, hey, man, you can't really do that. You can't really just make up stuff. There has been a side benefit to Tony Khan in all of this, because it seems like it's a debacle and it seems like it's a PR nightmare. But AEW has proven incredibly resilient and the fan base has stayed they have not really lost audience so well, now he can really choose what he wants to do going forward i don't know where he sits as far as the legal situation but however it ends up you know however it pans out i think he's going to be okay because right now they're running without all those stars and basically running the same numbers and i think putting on a good show well i also think part of it part of this is just complete speculation but you have to think like in a perfect world, he would love to have all of them come back. And oh, like, of course. Th- that would be especially working with each other. I mean, that would be like the ironic thing is that would be the biggest possible matches he could possibly put on right now is if he could get all those guys come back and, you know, punk to work against them. And so part of me wonders if maybe why he's just delaying things so long. It's probably a legal thing, but also probably like, Maybe it's just that thought, if I keep these guys employed, but separate for months and months and months, maybe they calm down enough that we can work this out. But everyone needs a little time yeah. out. Because yeah, my thing I, is, yeah. especially with Punk, what's he like? I know that Punk 
has money, blah, blah, blah. But he also still clearly has the desire to work and do something. And it's just like, I don't see him going. I mean, you never know, but I don't see him going to WWE. It's probably no. even less likely now that Hunter's in charge than Vince. Probably less likely because Vince never spoke ill of Punk. We, I mean, we knew it was off limits, but Punk was, I mean, Vince was all about it. But what's Punk going to do? Like, it's like, go to, I guess, go to New Japan if you want instead of living your cushy life You're in the great city of Chicago. I just say call his bluff, wouldn't you? And just say, like, all right, you know, I'm going to keep you under contract, but. Well, I mean, the other thing is I, you know, I've heard rumors. I, I don't really feel comfortable. I mean, they're kind of out there if you really look, but like that, the amount of money punk is making from AEW is incredibly large in the wrestling scheme of things. Like, sure. And so I could see also like why you would do legal battles is the idea of, are you just going to walk away from like, if, if someone tries to yeah. fire you and they say, we have cause because of a backstage fight that you threw the first punch, like, it would definitely be worth his time probably to say, you know what? Uh, I have a lawyer that says you guys instigated it. You know, you came to my locker room, you brought people there with me. I mean, with, you know, I felt threatened. Like that's the other thing. Like people are wondering like, why is there a loss and stuff? Well, let's say Tony Khan did decide, like, I just want to fire this guy. You know, it, it's hard to walk away from maybe double digit million, like eight figures. <laughs> So it's a staring cunt there. It might just be the two of them saying who's going to blink. So I save or make some money basically. And now that is, but you have another interesting opinion that's in the, in WWE that flies in the face of a lot of people. And I saw you tweeting about this and I can't say that I necessarily agree, but I admired the way you took it as Tommy was saying, cause it was, you immediately got flack. Um, Trevor, you're not the biggest, I don't want to say supporter, but you're, you're not enamored by Bray Wyatt. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Um, I, like, I always say this about Bray Wyatt. I think he's a 10 out of 10 on style. He's like a one out of 10 on substance. Like, like wow. you, you watch his promos, like everything about them, like his look is great. His theme, I mean, it's unique. His, his, his gimmick is great. His theme song is great. Just the way he recites his promos is great. Like, the actual content of them, they, they're never really about anything. And likewise, his match is like, he's a decent wrestler, but he's not a particularly special wrestler. But, you know, that, that's okay. Like, a lot of wrestlers you know, have gotten by with just that Ultimate Warrior. And I'm not, I, I would say he's more talented than the Ultimate Warrior, but the Ultimate Warrior was a ton of style and not a ton of substance. But... Like, I, I don't think I'm crazy to think that. Like, I know there's a lot of people that did not like that pain, but also a lot of people that agreed. But, like, I made that opinion. One of the reasons I, I said that, although I've said that multiple times, is, like, Seth Rollins in the last week or two came out with an interview where he said, you know, like, everyone that feuded with The Fiend or Bray Wyatt came out less hot than they did coming in. And, like, that's something that fans were saying for a long time. Like, even people that like Bray Wyatt is like, boy, people that feud with Bray Wyatt seem to, like, have less steam behind them, like less fan interest after the end of these feuds. And yet Bray Wyatt, the popular always seemed the same. And I feel it's just like Bray Wyatt feuds usually aren't about much. Like they're all just spooky, but kind of generic. Thank you so much for listening. And if you liked what you heard, go back and listen to the full episodes featuring these wonderful human beings. There's more great stuff in each one that we just couldn't fit into one hour. And if you're feeling generous, please give us a nice five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram at TurnbucklesPod and watch us on YouTube. Or 
Tell us what you want to hear more of and send us an email at turnbuckles at gmail.com. And as always, see you buckleheads. <laughs>